Oh, I'm sorry. You're not going to do like a rousing introduction of me to the community. No, don't do it now. Don't turn your mic back on. No, it's, it feels so freaking forced at this point. Ladies and gentlemen, the true. one, the only Matt Mober. Okay, no, stop. Hold your applause, please. Hold your applause. Katie, don't you dare shake your head though. There's a difference there. Hey, welcome to church, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the um, leaders here in this community. Thrilled that you are with us in this space. Um, kiddos, we love you guys. And band, we love you guys. It is so good, you know, in the ever-evolving nature of our community here to still be able to show up on Sunday nights, close our eyes, slow our speed, and just sing. You know, I mean, like Christian has talked about it many times before, but if I can be redundant and just say once more that there's something set apart about the nature of that space in worship where it's not like I have to dive deep into the inter, you know, the intellectual webbings of all things. I can just shut that brain off and get outside of myself for a change. And it, from, I'm projecting, I know, healing though. Like there's something medicinal in just getting outside of myself and lifting up those songs. And so thank you, Christian. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in that space. This is the sermonic space in our weekly Sunday night program where we try to dive into scripture. And at this particular moment, we're trying to dive into Otis Moss III's book, Dancing in the Darkness. Before we do, though, one of the things we say out of the gates every single Sunday, most important thing that we say out of the gates every single Sunday, is we want you to know that, like, regardless if you pick up anything that's helpful, clarifying, convicting or otherwise, in the next 20 minutes and then some, please hear this. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your essence as a human being, point blank, square, ground level, like that is, that's why you're here. Outside of this space on Sunday nights, in my experience, we size ourselves up, we get sized up by others for what we do how we perform, how we produce. That's not allowed in here. Here is the space where we remind you, we look you in the eyes and we say, you are a child of God, beloved as is, you're enough. You don't have to prove anything in here. And so personally, I'm going to go on probably 10,000 different tangents, and I don't know if any of it will be helpful for you, specifically in this space tonight. But do hear that, do receive that, do hold on to that. All right, thank you for my uh, soapbox. Thank you for indulging me, Grace, you in particular. Um, so we are in the book from the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, where he's trying to give us some spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times, in times of chaos, in times of riots, in times of uprisings, in times of indictments, in times of all kinds and colors and flavors where it's hard to make sure like, this is the way that is up. This is the way we're all trying to navigate it together. Looking to one another going like, wait, do you know what's going on? Because I think I do. But honestly, if I'm by myself looking in the mirror, I probably don't really know what's going on. I have my opinions, but they're more like outspoken than they are backed up by empirical data. We don't really know what is happening right now. It's ambiguous. So how do you and I, as people of faith, people rooted inside of a tradition like Christianity, what are the lessons for us, not just to survive, but to thrive? This is the week we're going to chapter one of the book where he is talking about the necessity, the essence of linking love and justice. 
my encouragement right now, because I feel it all the time every time I enter into a church. And so again, I want to apologize out of the gates if I'm projecting, but it's easy to go like with sermons, conversations, the moments that we have, it's another Sunday and we take it for granted and move on to the next thing. But really try to think over the last few years in your own personal experience where you've encountered different forms of injustice, you felt that uprising of emotion for justice, the need for like course correction, be it on the national level, individual level, your local community, collective level, this sense that there is something wrong here, we need to make it right here, and then we go about that work, and we scream, and we lean out of our passions, the conviction that comes with the clarity that says, this is wrong, and we know what is right, here we go. Think about when, when Otis Moss, before you even get into the content of chapter one, when he says the necessity of linking love and justice, linking justice and love. For me, before I got to paragraph two, I knew that he was going to touch on some things. Now, in that paragraph, he does touch on some things. He goes after not just like, well, here's how we should probably go about it. Let's find like the Kingian philosophy within all of us. It's practice of nonviolence. We're not here just to liberate the oppressed, but also the oppressor. Yes, yes, and yes. But then he also goes to a different place too. And he says, we're not here just to overcome like the, the obstacles at hand. We need to slay the spiritual giants that are in our way. Now, I can't speak for each and every one of us, but in this community, at least according to Debbie, tell me if I'm wrong. Have we ever spoken about like, um, like demons? Like, have we? No, we haven't. And Debbie wants to apologize to you guys for not having that conversation. Thank you, Debbie, for confessing that right now. But he does go there. And so in the brief space that we have here in this, this service tonight, what I would love to do is provide my case as to why when pressed, I don't know for certain if there are like these dark spiritual creatures crawling throughout the land, but why I believe it might be helpful for us to believe that there are. Text I want to go to is the quintessential text when it comes to all spiritual warfare. Dr. Moss himself calls it to mind. It's in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Now this is being presented to us on the screens in the King James Version because I just don't feel like you can actually ever talk about spiritual warfare without going into the King James. It just feels like it's got that old fire and brimstone nature. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places. Hold on to that text in your mind. I was with some friends. They picked a ball the other day. Friday morning, we do it every Friday morning, 6 a.m. I haven't won in a lot of weeks. So if you want to respond with any kind of pastoral care that's actually for the pastor, now would be the time. I'm in a dark space. Somehow we're trying to find, you know, in the midst of our defeat, the other team's victory. I've known these guys since we were babes. We were saying like, what do you actually remember about childhood? the wounds, the winds, everything in between. One of the questions that my friend called Bjorn raised was, do you guys remember, was there any particular figures that you were most scared of growing up? 
people that are like, when you fell asleep, they showed up in your nightmares. And there certainly was. The people that you would expect to find in the answers like that. People like Freddy Krueger showed up. Um, he was an obvious. Sarah, what was the next one? People like Darth, oh yeah, Darth Vader. I've never seen the Star Wars. That's why I forgot about that one. But Darth Vader apparently is a concern. Scream guy was, and then obviously Ken Herbeck was another one for somebody. And I don't actually know why Ken Herbeck was a concern for some people. But my friend called Kent, he said like, for whatever reason, he haunted my dreams. For me, my answer was clear. It was this guy right here. Now, please do not be fooled by the charm that he's got. He is Frank Peretti from the block. He is that guy that used to write all the, anybody else read In This Present Darkness? Show of hands, please. Born and raised on that. This guy was a best-selling New York Times uh, author with Christian fiction called, well, all I know is In This Present Darkness, and there's Piercing the Darkness, right, Then, Yeah. Piercing the Darkness, In This Present Darkness, those of you who have yet to be acquainted, consider yourselves blessed. Let me give you a brief refresher. This is somebody who gave us a lens on how spiritual warfare works. Actually, front flap of In This Present Darkness is the text that we just read. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. We wage it against principalities, the powers, the rulers of this world. From Frank's mindset, that meant that while we are driving down 694, trying to make our way to 35W, it is possible that time to time, there might be a dark shadowy creature that jumps onto your car to try to steer you to the side and kill you. That is a demon. Other situations are, um, again, if you're not familiar, like the whole plot line, uh, okay, Matt, focus. There's a lot of things we could say about this plot line, but one of the leading things is there is a, an antagonist who happens to be the psychology professor at a school and my wife is also into that stuff. So it's like, I don't know, Frank, that I go astray. It's hard to say for sure. But there's this moment where one of the students, a vulnerable, malleable mind, sits in the apartment of Professor Langstaff. And, and Frank literally lays it out by saying, while she was sitting on that couch, those who could see, those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, perceived this creature, falcony in nature, land its talons on her head, sink them deep into her, and start whispering things like, go this way, except what the professor is saying. And Sandy, every time I go, would love to. That's what spiritual warfare, warfare looked like, according to Frank Freddy. For me, even the nature of this book, Dancing in the Darkness, when I think of darkness, I think of my childhood. I think about reading those books and the combo platter of Frank Freddy and R.L. Stein, and I was terrified. I left Trout Lake Camp two days into the five-day trip because I was convinced there was demons attacking to me. Literally, like I have vivid memories. And it was all derived from not just reading these fiction stories like your kids might read a Hogwarts story and by morning when they come with you like, Mommy, is Hogwarts real? Is this a thing that actually happens? And you go like, Hogwarts is a fictional story. For me, showing up on Sunday, said, this is what the real world, quotes, doesn't want to tell you about the real world. These figures, these characters, these dark, shadowy, falcony creatures, this, when Paul is writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, he's trying to lay out what our battle is against. People who are followers of the Son of Love. Think about that from the gates. Paul is presupposing out of the gates that the church that he is speaking to are those who are committed to the ways of Jesus. 
those who are committed to the laws of forgiveness, mercy, compassion, justice, equitable living. How do we figure out how we can coexist, but not just for the sake of apathy, but also for like collaboratively constructing some kind of beloved community that Dr. King once spoke about. Paul's saying to people like you who carry aspirations like that, let me make it clear. Your battle, your beef, your problems, the thing that you're trying, the ones you're trying to oppose, it's not actually flesh and blood. It's not actually that neighbor down the road. It's not actually uh, President Trump. It's not actually the influencer that drives you mad on Twitter. It's not actually your mom in her worst of her moments. You're not about trying to pick a fight with flesh and blood. To be clear, you are against principalities, you're against the powers, you're against the rulers of darkness of this world. Inevitably, Frank Peretti and people of that sort, they're going to look at a text like that and go, well, if we're not against flesh and blood, and we're not against Satan himself, there's got to be some middle ground here for some kind of creature to exist. There's some kind of like creature in our presence that is inflicting all kinds of damage. I'm going somewhere, so stick with me. There is a Greek term here that explains that language right there, principalities and powers. Shows up 10 times in the New Testament alone. First two times it shows up is in the Gospel of Luke, and it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. When it shows up in Luke, it is saying things like this, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, the exact same Greek term that's employed in Ephesians 6, is rulers and authorities. From this standpoint alone, we can tell this is referring strictly to human institutions of power, governance, those who are holding the, the reins in the land. In Luke, 12, or Luke 20, it says the exact same thing. Now, you might ask then about the remaining eight, because if that's Paul's role is to take the message of the Christ and try to interpret it for us who are living in the absence, the wake of the Christ, how do we make sense of the principalities in power? What I would like to do for you right now is just an experiment of sorts. I'm going to read these texts as they come across your screen. With this term, in the eight other times that it is present, I want you to tell me, is this speaking about some nefarious, dark spiritual force or some political force or some mixture of the two? 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Next one says, Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created in him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Next one says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Next one says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Go on. Ephesians 1, 21, letter to the church in Ephesus, for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, everybody that you know, everybody that you think is somebody, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Titus 3.1 Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You know, so 
as I start to size up, like when we talk about spiritual warfare, something that clearly we haven't talked very often about, it is important to understand when we say things like principalities and powers, echoing the scriptures themselves, it's not exactly clear if it's speaking strictly about governance at hand, political institutions, human beings. But for me, coming out of the Pareti paradigm, it was healing. I remember reading people like William Stringfellow and, and Walter Wink and people like um, uh, Charles Taylor and, and trying to understand like, okay, so all the things of old that we've kind of chanted are, are, are um, chalked up to an enchantment, enchantment stage of life where we assume that there was ghosts and goblins and there's monsters behind all the things. Now we are actually, what it did was this. I had a clarifying moment about seven years ago where I was sitting down and I watched an episode of Scooby Friggin' New, our favorite show. Where are you? And from start to stop in that 30-minute episode, it lays out for you the human evolution from enchantment to disenchantment. You have out of the gates this being that is presented as being a havoc to the town. Frank Peretti's monster is ravaging everybody. It's a ghost, it's a goblin, it's a monster, it's a scarecrow gone mad. It is something of that sort. But then comes the mystery ink and Scooby-Doo, and they chase that being down. What happens when they get to the end of that chase? Well, wait a second, that's Mr. Jenkins underneath the <laughs> mask. We ripped it off, Tyler. We understand that it's actually not a ghost, nor is it a goblin. It's a man. It's the Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker from down the road. We had Christmas dinner with him last time for me in that space, reading a lot of different readers and writers like Wink and others. He's like, That's, that makes more sense to me. There's a problem there though. Because if I'm removing the fact that like, okay, so it's not some ghost nor goblin nor monster nor scarecrow nor robot gone wild or anything of that sort. If there's not a manifestation of an evil thing that I thought it might be that made me cower in the dark at night, and it actually turns out that underneath that mask is a human being, then the evil that was presented is now the evil that's a person. Much of our dialogue, nationally and otherwise, has said that like we're not going to play into these religious games of superstition and the, and the sensationalism of it all. We're not going to say that like there's these evil things because you need to take accountability. You need to be responsible for your actions. And so what you need to do is acknowledge that behind the mask, underneath the sheet, is not a ghost, but a person. You are the problem. You are the one who is evil. And yet Paul just told us that we don't actually wage war that way. We don't pick fights with greedy bankers, but against the principalities and powers. So we're back at square one. And so, Frank, if you're wrong, and it's not this world where there are things jumping on my Honda CRV at night when I'm just trying to peacefully drive home. If nobody is actually trying to sink talons in me, make me go astray, and there's actually a human power that is, that is doing all of this behind the scenes, then I can't pick a fight with them. So what is it? This is the beauty of Scooby-Doo. I don't think they intended this, but watch me give them credit for it. I think that Scooby-Doo will lead you to the end of each episode, 28 minutes strong. They take you all the way from saying there is this thing that is present before us that is very, very scary. Let's get to the thing behind it. And then they show the thing behind it. And the ask on you then is to Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo. 
get to the thing behind the thing. Take off the mask, but ask why that person reached for the mask in the first place. Take off the mask and recognize, oh, this is a greedy person who's trying to make more money. He's trying to get his corner market on the power in town. Now we have figured it out. No, no, Scooby-Dooing, Scooby-Dooing would say, why did he think that he needed to get more power? Why did he put that mask on in the first place? Whenever we talk about Jesus, whenever we talk about Dr. King, whenever we talk about Gandhi, whenever we talk about these legendary revolutionaries who are preaching out loud nonviolence, let's be clear, they're not asking you to be nonviolent. They're trying to encourage you to be more violent. Just not against the violent, but against violence itself. Stop being so petty and small where you think if we take out that person and we make this small adjustment, you've done something. You haven't done anything. The hatred, the bigotry, the prejudice, it still is there. You've left it all intact, but you removed one of the cogs in the machine. All you've done is taken the, the, the sheet off the perpetrator's face. But why did he take that sheet on in the first place? What is the thing behind the thing behind the thing? To link love and justice is doing the work where it says, I see that this person created a problem. I see that they hurt other people. But is anybody else saying, like seeing how they are hurt themselves? Is anybody else asking about the thing behind the thing? Whatever it is that is pushing them to be that way. And that's why there's even the, you know, we're talking about marriage between love and justice. There's also a marriage between this Scooby-Doo version of take the mask off, find out there's no creepy goblins, and say it's just a human element, but also like recognizing there is something in the air behind that human element that is making it do what it is doing. It's making me act the way that I act. There is something in the air, couldn't quite name it for you, that is making me uphold norms of patriarchy in our own house when it comes to raising our kids. The desire for money that I feel sometimes late at night. Self-preservation over cruciform love. There is something in the air, the thing behind the thing behind the thing that is causing these things. And if we don't actually get to the work of naming that for what it actually is, you're left with love or justice, but not love and justice. So as Moss says, love without justice can very easily just become sentimentality. It's a Hallmark card. You're screwed. You don't have a job. You're in a tough spot. Well, I love you. So do with that what you will. Justice, though, without love is saying, like, you caused this pain. Wait one second. Let me take your eye for the eye that you just took for me. Let me cancel you out. Let me remove you from society. Let me do the easy thing and make you the villain in our collective story. Love and justice, though, is saying that my work here as a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God being that wherever, cruciform love is actually present. My work here requires of me to say that I'm not just about trying to liberate the oppressed, but also the oppressor. It's not enough for me to try to make things right and kick others people out to do so. How do we holistically evolve, mature, move into something that is reflective of the kingdom of God as Christ himself calls us to be? Dr. King understood this. I'm going to be redundant because I know I've said it before, but one of the things that when we lift up revolutionaries like the Jesuses, the Gandhis, the Kings, you know what binds them all together? As much as they were standing up consistently, gave their lives for the oppressed, they were also outspoken about doing it for the oppressor. 
they were consistent in that matter. Matter of fact, Dr. King, in our generation, in our country, in our context, Dr. King, the greatest prophet that has ever entered into American territory, when he spoke about these matters, what he called the people who were throwing stones at him, that put a bullet through him, that lodged a knife one inch away from his heart, he said, they're not just these crazed, they're my sick white brothers and sisters, temporarily sick, not permanently broken. There's so much to be said about that. That is love and justice. How can we get this individual who is currently and temporarily sick proper medicine to restore them to uh, an edifying presence in our community? As a community for us, when we talk about finding spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times, I feel every inclination that you do to say, that guy is definitely the problem. <laughs> she is the worst. But what are you about? Are you trying to climb on top of that seesaw on the deck of the Titanic? Or are you actually trying to evolve the kingdom of God and saying she is a temporarily sick individual, and I might be as well. God sums it up for the prophet Micah, 613 laws in the Hebrew tradition. And somebody says, like, how do we... 613, I can't remember everything in one day, let alone like grocery lists or things that's work. And God responds and says, like, you don't need to sacrifice a cow. You need to chill out. Debbie, this is your favorite verse. I want you to say it. Because I think about you every time I read it. What does the Lord require you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk? And that's it. Do justice. Love mercy. Not retribution. And walk humbly with your God. One of the number one things we are encountering today are people who have stopped walking. I love that terminology that, that's used in that text because to stop walking is to say, I have arrived. Not malleable. You can't teach me one more thing because I have it all. You can't help me here. There goes humility. Do justice. Be about the work. Be proactive. Don't be apathetic. Wrongs are still wrongs. Broken things need correction. Don't lose sight, though, of your love for mercy. And please stay humble. Jesus, God, we are your people. God, we are trying to live according to the ways that you've taught us, the practices that you have put on us, God. Easier said than done. Easier said than done, God. But we want to be about it, Lord. We think about how in the early church, God, the number one verse that they always went back to every time they gathered was love your enemies because it's the hardest one to uphold. I think sometimes your first church going back, like, is this for real? Did he actually say that? And It's true, though, God. I'm tired of climbing on top of that seesaw thinking that we've done some. I don't believe that anymore. God, help us be people who are nutritional to the world around us advocates, but not apathetic, with clear convictions of justice, God, without needing to trample over anybody along the way. God, you are good, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. I think it's foundational to what we're studying this summer and looking at, this idea of the unity of, of justice and love. And I think that idea of peeling it back, 
seeing the humanity, seeing the divine in each and every person, like it's, it's such an easy thing to talk about. And I think in the day-to-day of our lives and our community and our world, I'll speak for me, it's sometimes hard to actually live that out, especially when I get fired up about something that seems um, unjust or unjust. But we cannot claim to be followers of Jesus unless we both are about justice and we're about love. As followers of Jesus, we are called to see the image of God in each and every single person. And that's our starting point. Because we follow a God who lived a life, he preached and he practiced justice and kindness. He taught his disciples about humility. And so that's the same call on our own life. On the night before Jesus died, he sat in a room with his disciples as they shared a meal and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So we invite you up during the music and you'll take the bread and you'll dip it into the cup. And we can take that moment to remember whose we are and who we follow and the call on our life to live a life of love and justice. Could you all stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.